books and reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Listeners, if you like our show, subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we appreciate feedback. Rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Facebook, and we will read them on the air. We enjoyed interviewing last week's guest, Neve Lutz, an avid reader originally from Ireland, so much that we would like to make international readers an ongoing series. We are looking for readers who were born in other countries and would want to chat about their reading experiences as children in other places. If you fit this description, go to our website and fill out a form to request to be a guest, or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook pages. Wherever the art of medicine is loved, there is also the love of humanity. This quote from Hippocrates, the father of medicine, is especially true when doctors imbue their experiences into artistic pursuits like today's guest. Kimory Martin is an emergency room physician turned author whose medical fiction features female doctors shouldering the life and death responsibilities of their profession, but also dealing with questions of friendship, love, and the thorny cultural issues of our times with a good dose of humor thrown into the mix. Her first novel, Queen of Hearts, published in 2018, was praised by the New York Times and cited as a most anticipated book by Southern Living and Writer's Digest. Her newest book, The Antidote for Everything, explores the friendship between a female specialist and her best friend, a male family physician who also happens to be gay. Her book explores what happens when her best friend is told by the administration of the hospital that he can no longer provide care for LGBTQ patients or risk being fired. Kimry talks to us about her childhood growing up in eastern Kentucky, the humorous way she chose the profession for her main character, what the storyline of her next book will look like, and why physicians have a unique perspective for writing fiction. Amy and I are starting to learn that the worst thing that somebody can say when we email them about being on is no. We were lucky in that our guest today said yes. So we're very excited to have Kimory Martin here. She is a physician turned novelist, and she is going to be talking about her new book, The Antidote for Everything, as well as her reading and writing life. So we're so glad to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you have some Kentucky roots, even though you live in North Carolina now. Yeah, so I grew up in the mountains outside Berea, Kentucky, uh, at the entrance to a holler, actually, on a little hill. And I consider Kentucky home. Every time I fly into the state, I'm, you know, beaming at the other people on the plane as if I am personally responsible for the beautiful farms below us and the horses. (laughs) And, you know, it just gives me this sense of homecoming. So what was your childhood reading life like? How much time do we have? (laughs) I'm the biggest book nerd of all time. I know you all think you are. (laughs) Um, 
Well, I grew up going to the library with my mother every week. When I was tiny, we would take my red wagon and fill it with books. And literally, I read every book in the children's library in Berea, and then every book in the adult fiction section, and eventually every popular science nonfiction book in the adult section. And I still read anywhere between two and five books a week, if I'm wow. lucky. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> So Did I'm you a, take a speed reading class? No, I am a fast reader, okay. obviously, and, and I don't do some other stuff sometimes that I should be doing instead of reading. If you catch my drift, my house is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any special books, like books that when you think about how you became a reader and a writer, books that stand out that you can think of those as being, I don't know, your gateway books, I guess. Oh, gateway books. That's a great term. <laughs> Did you just point that I right now? I just made that up right this second. Genius. I love that. I'm going to start using that. Yeah, I am deeply, deeply obsessed with Bill Bryson. Mm, um, me too. <laughs> one of my favorite writers because the man cannot write a boring sentence. You know what I mean? And every one of his books is crammed with information that is arcane and weird, but so interesting. And so he's my ultimate aspiration writer-wise, although he writes nonfiction. And in fact, I heard a couple days ago that he's coming to Charlotte, where I live, in 2021. And so I begged to be allowed to pick him up from the airport <laughs> and I think they might let me I will keep you posted okay cool. oh, that's, that's very exciting I, I, if you can send us a picture like a <laughs> selfie of you and Bill Bryson that would be amazing yeah he'll probably hate me and be like why did they inflict this upon me but we'll see <laughs> you said you were from Berea and our book club had the privilege of staying in your childhood home near Berea. And that was just such a super cool and funky place. So can you tell us a little bit about the house and sort of how that inspired you as a person? Yeah. So my parents, they met in Kentucky in the 1960s as part of the VISTA volunteer program, which is sort of like a domestic Peace Corps. My mother's family is from Kentucky and my father is from Washington State. And they met as part of this volunteer program and decided to live in rural Kentucky and they built their own house. Uh, together as young newlyweds without any building experience. But my dad was one of those sort of innate geniuses that can figure out anything. So when I was a child, if I needed information, you know, geopolitical or scientific or related to anything other than perhaps fashion, <laughs> I could ask him and he would figure it out. This is pre-internet. So he figured out how to build a house. And we lived in this quirky, weird house on the outskirts of town. And so I had no immediate neighbors as a child, but I had fields and mountains and cows and nature. And so that's how I grew up, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it had lots of cool little nooks and crannies that looked like it would be great for stowing away and reading if you were a kid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a lot of reading. We were a really bookish family, yeah. And, and there were goats, too. I don't know if the goats were part of the house, that, that they were there on the property and chased us a little bit. Yeah, that was fun. I'm sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> Hope you got away. So how did the transition from being strictly a physician to being a writer occur? It was gradual. I did have this sort of secret longing to write a book because I love reading so much. And one day I literally just sat down and started a book with no plan, <laughs> no knowledge of how to write a book either. And 
I immediately realized that I was hooked. You know, I was starting to dream about it and pull over to the side of the road to scribble things down and stop exercising. And so I knew within a period of a couple of weeks that I would finish this thing. And I educated myself on how to write. And it, it, it took a long, long time. I was working full time as an ER doctor. And gradually, I started prioritizing that more and more and more. I had a really serendipitous shift in my job. At some point, this, this guy in my church, who is a practice manager of an allergy clinic in Charlotte, approached me. And this clinic is in downtown Charlotte, where, which is all skyscrapers and banks, right? And he said they wanted an ER doctor on site in case anyone had an anaphylactic reaction to their shot. You know, all these financial people would come in and get their medicine. He said it would be boring and I'd be in a little room by myself with nothing to do. And, you know, I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't get bored. <laughs> you know, I'll do it. And so I shifted into that for a while. And that allowed me to get the book revised. At that point, I had a good first draft. And then I gradually stopped working in the ER as the book sold and took off. And I started doing tours and publicity stuff. It became too overwhelming to try to do both. So when you were still working and writing the book, and did you have your children at that time? Were you trying to juggle oh, yeah. all of those things? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I did. I joked to everybody that I gave up hygiene and housekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> and really, it's not so much of a joke. <laughs> you got something's got to give. All right, right. So in your new book, The Antidote for Everything, it touches on some politically and culturally charged topics, healthcare for LGBTQ patients. Is that an issue that you've dealt with personally or have colleagues of yours dealt with that? Yeah, so me, not so much personally, other than the fact that as an ER physician, you see literally everyone. But I don't have recurring patients, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, we see whoever comes in the door. But as a physician, I am interested in the intersection of medical care with cultural and political and legal realities. And I had a colleague who was instructed not to treat transgender patients or they would lose their job. And so it spurred this interest of mine in what is legal when it comes to firing someone and refusing them medical care. And I think that many people not people in the LGBTQ community, unfortunately, they know this, but, but many people are shocked to learn it's not illegal to fire someone because they're gay in much of the United States, not everywhere. And it sort of depends on where you live. And in fact, it's not even fully illegal to refuse medical care to someone on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, depending on the circumstances. And, and you get into a lot of legal stuff there. But I just think that this is something that flies under the radar for people whom it doesn't affect. Right. And I think it affects people who aren't LGBTQ themselves. I mean, even something as simple as birth control can be politically and culturally charged. Well, yes. I mean, the very first hospital that my husband worked at was a was a religiously affiliated hospital. And technically, they weren't supposed to prescribe birth control pills. But they were able to get around that by saying it was because of long menstrual periods or, you know, different things like that. But what I'm saying is it can affect anybody. You don't have to well, be LGBTQ. Well, that's true. And, you know, it begs the question of who should make decisions about medical care. Do we right. want administrators doing that 
insurance companies doing that? Politicians doing that? You know, or do we want doctors and patients together doing that? And, you know, of course I'm biased. Right, right. <laughs> so everybody knows probably what I think, but it is a worthy question about who gets to decide things that affect all of us. So when you heard about this from your colleague and you started writing the book, did you have to talk to lawyers? I mean, in terms of doing research, I think a lot of times, at least I know for myself as a reader, I sort of forget, you know, I get so immersed in the story that I forget how much work the writer had to do in order to Mm -hmm. make it real. So were you having to look up law, you know, precedent and stuff like that? Well, I talked to some lawyers and I also talked to some rights groups. It's really complicated to unwind what the laws are because they're literally different everywhere. So I do have creative license in fiction to be like, you know, okay, this is my universe that I created, so this is how it is. But yes, I did do that research to try to figure out what, in fact, is the case in various places around the country. The novel is set in Charleston, so I was particularly curious about what's legal in South Carolina. So there are even some bills right now. I think there might even be one in the Kentucky House that says transgendered teens, I think. They're trying to limit the health care that transgendered teens can get. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's several yeah. states that have bills right now. Did you have any idea that, that this was coming up? I mean, because you wrote this book probably several years ago. Yeah, no, it, it became a lot more of an issue after I'd already mm-hmm. written it. Not it became more of an issue, but it became more legally complex. Judiciary in this country is changing, and the laws are changing. And, in fact, the Supreme Court has already heard a case about employment discrimination, but they haven't ruled yet. Probably will in the next couple of months, so it'll be interesting to see how they rule on that issue. You know, And that's directly affecting the question of can you fire someone for their orientation or identity. So another theme of your book, both of your books actually, is friendships and very strong friendships. And I'm wondering why that's something that you wanted to write about. You know, I didn't consciously say, hey, I'm going to have a friendship theme throughout my work, but it definitely does. When I started The Queen of Hearts, my first novel, I had this very vague idea that it would be about a group of friends in medical school. Because for me, that was an utterly formative period in my life. You know, you work so hard, but you play hard too, and you wind up forging these incredible friendships with people. Um, In my case, my six closest girlfriends and I still see each other all the time, even though we're scattered around. In fact, I'm going tonight to Louisville to Carmichael's, and I know that they're going to be there, and I just feel ecstatic <laughs> right now. I'm very happy. But I because think you went friendship. to the University of Louisville Medical School? I went to school? medical school there, yeah. Yeah, so I think friendship is interesting because, you know, these are the people you pick. You're not bound to them by familial ties or sexual entanglement or romance or anything like that. You know, these are the people you are with because you want to be with them. And so when you screw that up, that's kind of interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So you're trained as an ER physician, and the two main characters in your first book were physicians or medical students, and two in this one as well. None of them are ER physicians. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious why you picked the certain specialties that you did, and none of them are your specialty. Yeah. um, Well, for one thing, I'm in this Facebook group with 80,000 women doctors who are also mothers, And so this is a great crowdsourcing (laughs) asset that I have. And so I asked for the second book. I was like, okay, tell me why your specialty should get a book. And hands down, the female urologists won it this time. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Talk about a sense of humor. <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. And I had a character in the Queen of Hearts who was a medical school friend. And I had this one line in the book about how she became a urologist. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'll write about her as the character of the next book. And it'll be sort of a spinoff. That's a great answer that you crowdsourced. I love that. Crowdsourcing is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You had mentioned a little bit, and we'll talk about it more later, but you're starting to work on something else. Do you anticipate that, I know you can't see the future, but what you're working on, is that also going to be medical, using your experience as a doctor to inform your writing in the future? Well, for sure, the third book will be because it actually states in my contract with Penguin Random House that my books have to be in a medical setting and have a female doctor as the protagonist. So it's very niche Wow. <laughs> so for the next book, for sure, because I had a three-book contract, and this will be the last book in that contract. And then I'll see. I don't know. I might branch out, but I think there'll always be an element of medicine in whatever I write. How do you think that writing and being a physician connect to each other? I mean, do you think that there's sort of a natural relationship between what you do as a writer and what you do as a physician? Yeah, I've given that some thought. First of all, I would say I actually was asked to teach a course called Fiction Writing for Physicians in Florida each year. And there's a surprising number of physicians who write. I'm on another Facebook group with women doctors who are also writers, and there's thousands of people in the group, thousands. It is worldwide, but there must be some kind of connection in the brains of people who do both things. And when you think about it, you know, as a physician, you're exposed to such a range of the human condition that lends itself particularly well to storytelling and drama. But doctors, you know, see everything from people's first breaths to their last breaths, family medicine in mm -hmm. particular, like your husband does. And it, it is inspiring. I mean, they say, you know, I've seen these articles about how people who read are more empathetic. Do you think that that there's some of that, too, that if you're a person who reads a lot and maybe writes, because a lot of times those go hand in hand, that you have this well of empathy? Oh, yes. I actually have a section in my bookstore talk that I give where I say that very thing that, you know, every time you read a book, you're seeing the world through another person's eyes, and that can't help but make you more empathetic. Your reading makes you smart, and it makes you informed, but it also makes you a better person, in my opinion. I believe that with my whole heart. So I'm curious how you went from just deciding one day you were going to write a novel and to then finish it, and then how did you get an agent? I mean, and all that happened so quickly. Or maybe it wasn't that quickly. I mean, maybe just as you're telling us, it sounds like it's fast. Okay, so if you want to traditionally publish a book, right, with one of the big New York publishers, you have to be represented by a literary agent. And the way you do that is writing this one-page letter called a query letter. And it describes your book and describes you. And I sent over 100 of those that were rejected. I got to the point where I would hear my computer make the email noise <laughs> and my face would flame up in shame because I knew it was going to be another rejection. So it was not easy. <laughs> it was humbling. It took forever for me to get an agent. And You when have I, to have a thick skin for that. You do. And I do. No, I don't. I'm, I'm wounded by everything. But, <laughs> but I persevered despite that, you know. I, I kept going and I landed a fantastic agent and she sold the book to Penguin. But it was about five years from okay. the time that I started writing till the time that it was published, the debut book. 
I don't know. I just really think that's so important for people to hear over and over and over again because the author we interviewed the other day that's actually airing today, it took her, what, 12 years? I think, I think it was 12 years yeah. yeah, to get published. And so I think that most people think, oh, it's lickety split. And they don't understand how many years and how much work and how many rejections go into getting something published. I think maybe they'll have a better appreciation mm -hmm. for, for what they're reading. I know I do anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it'd be hard to understate the financial doom as well. <laughs> <laughs> what challenges are there to writing about medical issues for the everyday public? about the life of physician. Do you have to soften any of it because of the medical jargon or? Yeah. I mean, a little bit, but I very consciously don't excise that element from the work. And sometimes I assume that the reader will understand things from context. Because one of the things I like about books that are in a setting I'm not familiar with is it makes me feel smarter to read this insider's view of a particular industry or area or whatever. And if you don't like medical fiction, you won't like these books probably. And I also am accused of having a really nerdy vocabulary in general. <laughs> and sometimes I do see reviews from people that are like, what the hell? I couldn't, this was like a SAT test. And I try <laughs> not to do, I mean, I try not to sound like a thesaurus, but I also just like words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's me, you know, you may or may not like that. But a lot of people do like that, I've found. And, you know, most of the medical stuff, I think, is understandable. Yeah. And I didn't think it was overly graphic. I mean, if you're somebody who's super squeamish, squeamish. I don't think that you'd have a, a problem. Yeah. 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 I mean, there are descriptions of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, you know, if you're going to read like Stephen King or something, you're going to see way more, <laughs> way more carnage. I was going to say you use the word arcane in this conversation, which I just thought was really awesome because <laughs> most people don't use that word. So yeah, I am a hardcore nerd. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it the vocabulary nerd. So the book covers are really interesting. In the first book, it's an anatomical heart with the valves being composed of flowers. And so in the newest book, it's also, it has sort of that medical textbook turned on its head idea. Mm -hmm. So do you have any input in that, the whole process of the book cover, or is that out of your domain? Well, authors don't get to pick their covers or their titles with a big publisher. So for the Queen of Hearts, they did ask me if I had a request for the cover art. And I said I wanted a vintage looking drawing of an anatomic heart. And they thought a naked heart would gross people out. So they covered it in flowers. And it looks beautiful. It's I, I really love artistic. the covers of your books. It yeah. was That cover was on like every best of the year list for covers. And she put some birds and bees in there and said it was this mixture of celebratory and funereal flowers to illustrate the circle of life in a medical practice. This artist was amazing. In fact, the concept was so popular that they decided the cover art from now on will reflect the medical specialty of the protagonist. So cardiology got a heart. And I said, well, you know, my next book is about a urologist, right? <laughs> That's a lot of flowers. <laughs> so I was really curious to see what they were going to come up with. And they did a great job. They did pick this sort of sexually suggestive flower, anthurium. I hadn't curious. thought about that, but now I, now I do. <laughs> and there's like a skinned man on there. And it sounds like it would be hideous, but it turned out so gorgeous. 
Yeah, it really, it really is. And the thing that I kind of like about it too, I think it reflects a little bit of what's in the book because there's a lot of hardcore medical stuff, but there's also a lot of more human emotion stuff, which yeah. to me is more like the, the flower mm-hmm. part. So it's kind of a, a melding of the two. Yeah. I discovered as I became a writer that I am completely into massive drama. <laughs> like my characters really get into some stuff. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that you don't get to pick the title. Did you have titles in mind for the books before you knew that you wouldn't get to... <laughs> I should have said authors don't necessarily get to pick the title. So The Queen of Hearts is about a cardiologist and a trauma surgeon, and I called it Trauma Queen. Mm. And I thought that was funny, but they um, they didn't want the word trauma on mm. the cover. So that got changed. And then The Antidote for Everything, I did name that one, but it took forever. I'm bad at naming. It, I, I struggled and struggled, and so did my editor. We were like, what in the world are we going to call this? <laughs> but... In the final chapter of the book, the characters do reveal what they believe now to be the antidote for everything. And I'm curious to see if readers will agree it is probably not what you think. You know, it's not love, although that would work probably. But, I, you know, I want to see if people agree with them. So tell us about your writing process. Do you write a little bit every day? Where do you write? Tell, tell us all about that. Well, right now I'm on a book tour, so I'm barely writing any. But when I'm home, I write when the kids are in school, which means summer is a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) So I get up and exercise a little bit, get them off to school, and sit down. I usually tackle email and social media for an hour or two and then write for a few hours. And by the afternoon, I'm kind of fried. So I don't usually write past two or three most days. Every now and then I'll get a second wind in the evening, but mostly I just sort of lay around and moan. (laughs) When you're writing, you know, we've talked to different writers. Do you just put all your ideas on the page and then come back to them the next day? Or in terms of your revision process, how do you kind of work that? Well, I'm a messy writer. I don't outline or really plot ahead of time, which is I wish that I could do that. And, you know, writers divide themselves into these two camps. I'm Mm -hmm. sure you've heard this from Mm -hmm. lots of writers. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a plotter. I'm trying to be more with the third book, which has a great basic idea, I think. But with the first two, I just sort of, you know, vomited out stuff and then went back and tried to clean it up. So tell us about this third book that you're working on. So my publisher is pitching it as The Hot Zone meets Sophie's Choice. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So it's turning out to be weirdly timely because the main character is an infectious disease doctor. She's traveling in Europe and Africa with her two children in the middle of a brand new viral pandemic. And both of her children become deathly ill, and she has to pick which kid gets the only available dose of an experimental antiviral medication. And I know that sounds kind of far-fetched, but I got the idea from the Ebola outbreak where there was actually a similar circumstance that occurred. And then I've been researching this one kind of hard, talking to CDC people and ID doctors, WHO people. And then, you know, a few months ago, all of a sudden, we're hearing about COVID-19, the coronavirus. And I'm thinking, well, I hope that this thing is not as bad as what I'm writing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. It's like life imitating art in my case. But yeah, it is requiring more research, this one. Wow. That sounds really good. Yeah. 
But I, I'm like, oh, it makes me anxious just hearing about it. Yeah, so which of your kids are you going to pick? <laughs> <laughs> I've got three. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so in both of the books, you have nods to Kentucky in them. Now, the first one is part of it's set in, in Louisville. But in the second one, you also have some nods to Kentucky in the form usually of bourbon. But <laughs> I was just wondering, is that something you're going to continue? Yeah. I'm trying to get so famous that the bourbon people will start sending me <laughs> some samples. <laughs> like, you know, an influencer would get. <laughs> but no, I love Kentucky and I'm proud of it. There definitely will be Kentucky in all the books. Very good. So if someone wants to follow you on social media, you said you spend time every day doing social media. Where would they find you? Well, I like Instagram the best, you know, the bookstagrammers, because it's friendly there and beautiful, and it's celebratory of literature and all that. And to tell you the truth, I have made some amazing friends on Instagram. People in Kosovo, Iceland, Brazil, Japan, Kenya. I I have all these friends now all over the world from Instagram. Um, So I, I like that a lot. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Facebook is, I manage to remember it every now and then and Twitter is like you know toxic hell but sometimes I go on there and like blast my opinions too (laughs) when you need to vent you go to Twitter (laughs) yeah so update your family you go to Facebook right 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 so are you just on there as Kimmery Martin or is it Mm -hmm. a special tagline yeah well on that note we're gonna take a break and when we come back we're gonna talk about what we're reading Our guest, Kimmery Martin, had to prepare for her author talk tonight, so Amy and I are stuck just talking to each other, but that's okay. Yeah, we like talking to each other. We do. So I'm going to tell you what I've been reading, or what I just finished. What did you just finish? I actually got it as an ARC, um, an advanced reader copy of The Innocence, a novel by Michael Crumey, C-R-U-M-M-E-Y. It starts out within the first two pages these two children Ada and Everett Best they live in Newfoundland and this is set back it's this is not like a modern story Mm -hmm. but within the first couple pages their baby sister dies their mother dies and their father dies and so they are left orphaned in this very remote place in Newfoundland and they're around nine and eleven And they have to survive on their own. They're kind of in this cove. And so a boat comes about twice a year. And they have learned how to, you know, from watching their parents, how to garden, how to fish. And they row out to this boat twice a year and kind of settle up with whoever it is that brings their supplies. And then they go about their business for the next six months until the boat comes back again. What's their housing situation like? Uh, They live in a house. It's a very, like, small shack. Okay. They don't have indoor plumbing. They don't have, I mean, it is very... Rustic. Rustic. I don't actually know if they even say the date, but I got the sense that it was, like, 1800s. I mean, I could be wrong, but it's very, very isolated. I mean, in some ways, not a lot happens in terms of like from a modern lens, like Ada goes and picks berries and she sees a bear, which 
sounds not, pretty exciting. I mean, it is kind of exciting. And, <laughs> and like they find this shipwrecked boat. So because of the winters there, they find this boat and it's basically locked in ice. And so they're able to go out to the boat and they discover some pretty tragic things in that boat. But the main story is about their survival. The other part of the story is, you know, if you think about it, they were orphaned when they were very young. And you can tell by the way they speak to each other, they're not educated. You know, their their language is fairly limited. And so they are trying to figure out themselves and their development, which is normal development for young men and young women, but they are brother and sister. Mm. And so without me going into too much detail. into too much detail, it delves into some issues that kind of make you squirm a little bit, but it's beautifully written. And I feel like it gave me a lot to think about. In modern life, we have so many parents who, I don't know, there's like this divide. There's children whose parents kind of throw them out, (laughs) you know, like they're kind of on their own from a very young age. And then we have parents who do everything they can to shelter their children. And I think that the idea we have is that the parents who are sheltering their children are better parents. But This book kind of makes you think that there is a downside to children being too innocent. And I put that in quotes. That means they're lacking in knowledge, which can leave them very confused. It can leave them very uncertain. And it can ultimately make them do things that end up having a negative impact on their life. And so I feel like, you know, the story, again, it's not like this action story. It's it's a very sort of simple tale. It made me look up Newfoundland and look at pictures of what it looks like because I really feel like the terrain and the weather is so much uh, a part of the story because it, it impacts every single thing they do when they're sick, when the fish don't come, when the ice is too thick. Right. You know, it, it has a very serious impact on their life. So Sounds like something I might like. Now, is, the part that you said made you a little squeamish, is it graphic? I mean, is it something that people should know ahead of time in case that's something they don't want to read? Well, because, you know, I went into this not knowing anything about the book. And after I read the book, I looked up some interviews with the author and It was actually kind of interesting. He came upon this idea accidentally. He was doing research for either another book or something else. And he found this historical document. I think it was in a newspaper or something like that. And it was about a a priest or a minister who found a cove and found this brother and sister. And they had a baby. And the brother ended up pulling a shotgun because the priest was, I, I don't know what the priest was doing, but they were like, get away, just get away. And so the author in a couple of these interviews talked about how he read this. He didn't even mark it, you know, like he didn't save it. He didn't copy it. He didn't write down anything about it, but that idea stuck with him and it ended up becoming the basis for this, for this novel. And he said in a couple of interviews, I don't really want this to be the incest book. Right. So that's only one aspect of the yes. story, not the 
whole story. Yes. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, that's definitely part of it. But I don't know. I mean, it makes you think about, so it's the question of what does isolation do to people? And it's innocence in, in a much broader perspective. It's innocence from other people. You know, it's innocence of what naturally happens in your body. And I felt like it was beautifully written. You know, this Ada and Everett, they were just very confused. And because they were lacking in education and language, they weren't even able to express their confusion to each other in a way that might have reduced their own confusion, I guess. Yeah. So it's a very quiet book. I mean, it's a somber book, but it just gave me a lot to think about. So I would recommend it. I think I give it four stars. So you said this was an arc. Do you know if it's out? Yes, it is. Okay. It is out. Okay. Yes. So that's good. That's what I've had going on. How about you? I am reading Emma by Jane Austen and of course I wanted to read it because I want to go see the movie but I can't go see the movie until I have finished the book because you know me and Emma was published in 1816 and it was the fourth book that she published I know you've read a little bit of Jane Austen but for those who have not her novels center generally around women and how they depended on marriage to help their status in society among the landed gentry and landed gentry would kind of be what we would call upper middle class. But in the 1800s, they called it the landed gentry. And I guess there's more that goes with that term. That sounds term. better than upper, upper yeah. middle class. I mean, actually, there's more that goes with that term in British society, but it's, that's basically what it is. I did not read a lot of Jane Austen when I was younger. I think I read Pride and Prejudice maybe in college. But I've read a couple of books recently, and I enjoy the slice of life that looking at that time period gives me. But It does take me several chapters to get into the rhythm of the syntax, the language that she uses that is very common for that time. So it's not a quick read for me, but I I am enjoying it. And I'm I'm about halfway through now. So the story is about Emma Woodhouse, and she's a 21 year old woman from a family of some means in a small village called Highbury. And she says that she will never marry. And her mother's been deceased for many years, but she lives with her quirky father and until recently a governess named Miss Taylor, who she's very close to, and they were really friends as well. So Emma prides herself as being a matchmaker and sees herself somewhat responsible for Miss Taylor making a good match with a local widower named Mr. Weston. But after Miss Taylor marries, Emma is looking for another young woman to sort of hang out with, to befriend and spend her time with. So she meets a new young lady, a 17-year-old named Harriet Smith, who has come to live with a local woman. And Harriet is pretty and she's been educated, but she's an orphan. And not much is known about her family or about any money that her family may have. So therefore, she's not of the same social standing as Emma. Harriet looks up to Emma in every way, but the advice that Emma is giving her as far as her marriage match goes is well-meaning, but misguided. Because of her status? Yes. Because Emma is quite fond of Harriet, she thinks that Harriet can maybe marry higher above her station than she really can. So I'm only halfway through, but there's a few things that stick out to me. One thing... Mm -hmm is the humor. And I do enjoy that about all of the Austen novels that I read. In so many ways, she's poking fun at the society that she's writing about. And all of the books that 
I've read have had a few characters that are meant as comic relief and might remind you of someone that you know, maybe in your family, a crazy uncle or a neighbor (laughs) or something. I mean, I think all of us might recognize the kernel of ridiculousness of, of some of these characters. So in this particular book, those comic elements are found in Emma's father, Mr. Woodhouse, who's a jolly but odd hypochondriac. And also there are the neighbors, Mrs. and Miss Bates. So Mrs. Bates is an elderly lady, but her daughter, Miss Bates, is a spinster and and takes care of her. (laughs) Miss Bates talks really fast and incessantly, and it's hard for anyone else to get any words in. There was a funny line that Miss Bates says when she's talking about her mother's hearing. She says, my mother's deafness is very trifling, you see, just nothing at all. By only raising my voice and saying anything two or three times over, she is sure to hear. (laughs) Which at the time just made me laugh. Another thing that I noticed, and this kind of goes to what you were saying about your book, so I guess there's a connection in this way. Even though this is more of a comedy, but how many of the characters have been orphaned Mm -hmm. or at least one parent dies at a young age? So we take for granted now having a longer lifespan and antibiotics to take care of very common illnesses now. But at that time, they didn't have those things. And death and dying among the young was a much more part of everyday life. And then the children of the people who died were left to the mercy of other family members who might have to take them in. But those children, it sort of affected their whole life, who Mm -hmm. they could marry or not marry. The lives of the people in a Jane Austen novel revolve around this high-wired dance of who is eligible to marry, does their class standing match up, who has the most dowry, being sure not to make a match below their station. And it feels like a transaction that is hidden by the trappings of so-called love. Emma says she does not want to marry, but she has money that she will inherit. So someone of lesser means wouldn't have that same option. No one will call Emma an old maid, but her friend Harriet will have that title if she cannot find a match. And while we think of, of this kind of class system in England, it made me think about modern day. And do we have a lesser defined class system? Many would say yes. It may not be centered around marriage, but there have been several recent studies that show that the best predictor of how well off a person ends up is directly linked to their socioeconomic standing of their parents. And that's in current America. It's hard to move up if you're born poor. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to say is that it was noticeable to me the dichotomy between the emphasis on politeness and manners in an Austin novel versus current day with Twitter and social media. (laughs) So I feel like there's a breakdown of civility today and people write things on social media that they would never say to a person's face. And in so many respects, reading an Austin novel is refreshing because there's the importance of acting like a gentleman or a lady. But I also think that that same emphasis of over-the-top politeness is a facade that the people of Austin's time could use to cover up what they truly felt. And so there's a passage where Emma meets a new gentleman, and while he's perfectly mannered, she cannot decipher what is behind it, who is the true person underneath. That's an interesting thing to think about. Mm. So anyway, those are my observations of it so far halfway through it's a big book people it's like almost 500 pages it's taken me a little while (laughs) so when you were talking about this I have not at least I don't think I've read Emma I've been known to forget books that I've read but it made me think 
about the movie Emma that came out in 1996 with Gwyneth Paltrow. With Gwyneth Paltrow, mm-hmm. and I do remember seeing that. Did she win an award for that? No, I don't think so. She won an Academy Award for Shakespeare in Love. Okay, that's what it was. Okay, mm-hmm. but but she in in the 1996 movie, she, Gwyneth Paltrow plays Emma Woodhouse, and Tony Collette plays Harriet. And when you were telling, I was like. I know this story. I know this story. Yeah. And that was why I was yeah. furiously looking at I never saw that movie. So now I you need am to. a so I am a newbie. But I will say I was on Facebook and I was watching a preview of the new movie and I was really excited and I made the mistake of reading some of the comments. And wouldn't you know somebody totally put a spoiler in there yeah. about how it ends. And so now I know how the I know how it ends, but I'm still going to finish it because I want to see how we get there. Okay. Very good. When we come back, we'll be back with Kimry Martin and we're going to ask her her top 5. We are back with Kimmery Martin, and we're going to be asking her her top five. Kimmery, you live in Charlotte, North Carolina. If someone from Louisville was traveling to Charlotte, what is the top place you'd advise them to visit on their trip and why? Me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I would probably know the person coming from Louisville. (laughs) Well, Charlotte's very different than Louisville, and I love both cities. Louisville is funky and cool, and, you know, you can overeat and drink. Very easily. <laughs> yeah. Charlotte's more flashy and corporate and beautiful. But I like all the sort of big city elements of Charlotte, particularly since I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So I like, you know, going to Panthers games, going downtown and walking the maze through all the buildings. There's a lot of really cool downtown parks. I, I, I like the city feel of it a lot. Um, riding on the light rail, that kind of thing. So I think if you came to Charlotte, what I would do is get one of those apps on your phone that's like a scavenger hunt for cities. You wander through Uptown and it directs you different places as you try to find things related to historical facts about the city or buildings or geography or whatever. And I've done a few of those and they're really good. Oh, cool. Do you have a favorite off the top of your head? No, I can't remember the name of any of them. Okay. Okay. But they're scavenger hunt apps. Yeah. And you can do that in any city. Okay. Or any big city anyway. Cool. I'm going to have to try that. So we read an article recently about you where you have redesigned your your writing space, your new office, and what is the top aspect about it that you love the most? So I can tune out noise when I write, and I could do that when I worked in the ER too, and it used to drive the nurses crazy. <laughs> Dr. Martin. Dr. Martin. <laughs> Dr. Martin. You know, I'd be like, oh, wow, what? <laughs> I don't do as well with visual clutter, and, you know, three kids, so I'm doomed. So I commandeered the playroom initially and made it into a writing space and then we did an addition on our house and I built in a loft that's kind of like a guest room slash writer studio and it's really open and clean and pretty and it has a cool desk and it's got a comfy chair and a bed and and it's detached from our house so I go in there and it's like I went somewhere else totally that's Awesome. I would like one of those in my Oh, house. and I want to tell you also, you guys will love this. If you go on my Instagram and go back a few months, there is a picture of the staircase in this room. And I was looking for a cheap way to glam it up. So I, somebody painted it dark brown for me. And then I went on Etsy and ordered gold and bronze decals that are like the spines of books. 
and I got to pick what books I wanted. So I gave them 20 or 22 of my favorite books. And then I put them on the stair risers. So it looks like the staircase going up is um, a library. I saw that. I think that there was a picture of that in that Charlotte article that we read, and it was awesome. It was pretty yeah. awesome. So a magazine came out and did a whole thing on it. Yeah. <laughs> the detail that caught my eye, though, was that you have an old typewriter in there. Yes, which is really in vogue amongst the bookstagrammers to get a hold of an old typewriter and take pictures of it with books. So this one was my mom's and then mine. And yeah, I have that, and I just keep it on my desk to look cool. When you write, do you you know, use a laptop or computer, or do you handwrite? Oh, I do use a laptop or a desktop. Mm -hmm. I went to some book talk recently by James Patterson and Bill Clinton, and they both write with pencil. (laughs) Well, I know some (laughs) writers do, but... Oh, I mean, old men? (laughs) I can't imagine how painful that would be. Yeah, I I mean, I write, I freelance write, and my hands can't write as fast as my brain is going, Mm -hmm. and so I have to type if... Yeah. Well, I never learned to type because in high school, when typing class came up, I was like, well, I'm not going to do that because then people will make me type papers. I don't know why I thought that somehow if I couldn't type, I wouldn't have to. So now I just like type with two fingers, but I do it really fast. Yeah. And I also cannot imagine writing pre-internet. Like you can research anything, see anything, learn anything instantly. Like can you imagine having to go to the library or go to the place that you're writing about every time? Yeah. I can't. But we did. I mean, I wrote papers before the internet. I mean, you have to go to the library I know. And, and you know and look get up out your journals. encyclopedia. Yeah, but set, writing yeah. a book, I would say at least once every 15 minutes I'm looking something up. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that you like to travel. You've been traveling a lot for this book tour. What is your top life goal related to travel? Okay, I have a really good idea for this. I hope you guys like it. I want to write a travel book. First of all, I want to be paid to travel around the world. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> and then I want to write a book with a different chapter for each place. And I've already started doing this on my website. There's a travel log section um, in there where I've done a few different countries. But I want to open each chapter with a review of books that are set in that place. Mm. Because every time I travel somewhere, if I read a fiction book about the place, it sticks in my mind so much more clearly, the history and the topography and the architecture and the geography and all of that stuff. I remember better if I've read it in a story. So I thought this will be like a combo travelogue slash book recommendation Mm. book. Amy would be down for that. Yeah, I'm totally a big proponent for reading books about the places where you're going, yeah. fiction books particularly, to really give you that feel. And yeah. Well, if you want to see my early attempts, I've done Iceland, Costa Rica, Rome and Florence, a few other places. I haven't put the books part into it yet, but I, I did my experiences there and basically what I screwed up in each country. <laughs> um, so you can get a glimpse of what this would be like. Cool. Did you read any books from that were about Costa Rica? I did, and don't ask me the title that's because okay. I can't think of titles. You can tell me ever. later because um, I've been to Costa Rica, and that's why. I, but yeah, a long yeah. time ago, I would be yeah. curious. I'm wondering, was the Iceland one recent? Uh, it was like three years ago, maybe. Because we read a book, Burial Rites. Oh, Burial yeah, yeah. Rites. That's that one of the books in, I read. Yeah, mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Right, that was about the last woman that was mm-hmm. executed yes. in yeah. Iceland. Right. Yeah. 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 That was very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been to Iceland and. My husband would move up there if 
well, we weren't there in the winter. We were there in May. He might not want to move and live up there in the winter, but he was down for like May through September. So on your website, it sounds like you're not a big proponent of household chores. But what is the top and household also in this interview? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is the top household chore that you poorly execute when you're forced to do it? I guess basically, what's your least favorite household chore? Hands down, cleaning the refrigerator. Oh, oh yeah, I don't yeah. like that one either. I I mean, I'm not squeamish. Like I can deal with all manner of carnage but <laughs> if you give me food that's like older than a week I just want to vomit <laughs> it makes me so disgusted that I don't do it and then that makes it a lot worse <laughs> when yeah. you do have to do it yeah I'm not a fan of that I'll, I have a, a new refrigerator that the defrost so every six months I have to actually like old school defrost it oh. so I have a 25 year old refrigerator in my basement which is where I put all the food from the upstairs refrigerator when I have to defrost the new refrigerator it's horrible wait why why did you do that well I didn't mean to it just started doing this after we'd had it probably about oh. four years oh. so oh. it's not a feature of the refrigerator no, that it's old no, school it's a flaw. Oh, okay. and we're just I'm I like that you wanted to that's no, what no, I no, thought no, I thought no 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 it's a flaw and it's not in the budget right this second to replace it. And it's not that old. It's maybe seven years old. And it just irks me that we use the 25-year-old refrigerator in the basement to they compensate. Don't like they, they, don't. To. they don't. They don't. I feel like, like get off my lawn, that person. All right. You said you edit your children's book reports. What is the top thing you enjoy about reading your children's reviews of books? Well, really, it's just child because my middle child is the only one that reads heavily right now. My youngest one does also, but she doesn't yet really synthesize it in, enough to write a book review. But my middle kid, I told him, you can have any books that you want and I will buy them, but you have to write a review for my website of these middle grade books. And he started doing that. Well, I like seeing what he likes to read because we do not have even remotely the same taste in books at all. And so I'll pick out books that I think he would think are cool and he's repulsed by them or uninterested or whatever every now and then we'll hit on something we both like like uh both of us really like this book called booked and hold on i'll think of it in just a minute it's kind of like rap poetry in a sports setting oh um, um kwame alexander yes, is yes, the author yeah so we both what? loved those yes, books I know. but most of the time the books he likes are more actiony and gross <laughs> than anything i would pick i also found with my kids that if I gave them a book and said, I think you might like this, that was a surefire way of making sure that they would not read it. Yeah, it's better to say, please don't, don't, don't read this. Don't read this. And then <laughs> this they might. This is not for you. This is too adult. <laughs> I, I keep telling my son because I read to them before bed every night. And I'll say, I've, I've got this book. I think you might like it. And we've done this dance long enough that I can say, if he says, well, then I say, remember this book and remember this book and remember this book. And once we get to the end of all these books, he's like, oh, that was really good. Is there another one? Like I read A Long Way from Chicago. And then we read the next one. And after that one, he cried because it was over. So anyway, we've done this dance enough that when I say, hey, I think you'd like this book, he's like, okay. So you've got some cred. I've got some cred now. It doesn't work in any other respect in our lives, but in that respect, it does. So, so your son's reviews are on your website? Is there a special section? Um, yeah, the website's a little cumbersome for that stuff, but if I think it's 
on the side, there's some categories you can pick from, and there's travel, kids' books, stuff like that, under the blog section, maybe, of the okay. website. And are your travel, the the things you mentioned about Costa Rica? The travel things are in there, The I travel, think. okay. Yeah. I haven't put any of his reviews up in a long time because I have run out of time for the website. <laughs> I, I keep a running list of some things I'm reading on the homepage, but I haven't actually done author interviews or in-depth book reviews in a little while. I used to do that all the time. Prior to your first book or? Yeah, prior to my first book and kind of through it a little bit. I was interviewing some authors and I got some great interviews out of that. What was one that was super memorable to you? Chris Bodalian. Oh, yeah. Um, and we've become friends actually since then. So did you just call him up and say, hey, can I interview you? Or No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I lucked into that because I'm now on the board of the library in Charlotte. Mecklenburg County, which is a huge system that has about 2 million users, 2 million potential users, I should say. And we were doing a fundraiser for the library that he was coming to speak at. And I said, how about if you let me interview him? And they did. Oh, that's very cool. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for coming in. We know you're tired and you've been traveling. You're going to be at Carmichael's tonight. But thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come speak with us on the podcast. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.